book the fifth part one of birds of prey by mary elizabeth braddon this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter one betrayed by a blotting pad at an early hour upon the day on which valentine hawkehurst telegraphed to his employer philip sheldon presented himself again at the dingy door of the office in gray's inn the dingy door was opened by the still more dingy boy and mr sheldon the elder who lived in a state of chronic hurry and had a handsome cab in attendance upon him at almost every step of his progress through life was aggravated by the discovery that his brother was out out he repeated with supreme disgust he's always out i think where is he to be found the boy replied that his master would be back in half an hour if mr sheldon would like to wait like to wait cried the stockbroker when will lawyers clerks have sense enough to know that nobody on this earth ever liked to wait where's your master gone i think he just slipped around to holborn sir the boy replied with some slight hesitation he was very well aware that george had secrets from his brother and that it was not judicious to be too free in his communications with the elder gentleman but the black eyes and white teeth of the stockbroker seemed very awful to him and if philip chose to question him he must needs answer the truth not having been provided by his master with any convenient falsehood in case of inquiry what part of holborn asked philip sharply i did hear tell as it was the telegraph office good exclaimed mr sheldon then he dashed downstairs leaving the lad on the threshold of the door staring after him with eyes of wonder the telegraph office meant business and any business of his brother's was a matter of interest to mr sheldon at this particular period he had meditated the meaning of george's triumphant smile in the secluded calm of his own office and the longer he had meditated the more deeply rooted had become his conviction that his brother was engaged in some very deep and very profitable scheme the nature of which was his bounden duty to discover impressed by this idea mr sheldon returned to the hansom cab which was waiting for him at the end of warwick court and made his way to the telegraph office the ostensible motive of his call in gray's inn was sufficient excuse for this following up of his brother's footsteps it was one of those waifs and strays of rather disreputable business which the elder man sometimes threw in the way of the younger as the wheel of the hansom ground against the curbstone in front of the telegraph office the figure of george sheldon vanished in a little court to the left of that establishment instead of pursuing this receding figure philip sheldon walked straight into the office it was empty there was no one in any of the shaded compartments so painfully suggestive of pecuniary distress and the stealthy hypothecation of portable property a sound of rattling and bumping in an inner office betrayed the neighborhood of a clerk but in the office mr sheldon was alone upon the blotting pad on the counter of the central partition the stockbroker perceived one great blot of ink still moist he laid the tip of his square forefinger upon it to ensure himself of that fact and then set himself deliberately to scrutinize the blotting paper he was a man who seldom hesitated his greatest coups on the money market had been in a great measure the result of this faculty of prompt decision 
Today he possessed himself of the blotting pad and examined the half-formed syllables stamped upon it with as much coolness and self-possession as if he had been seated in his own office reading his own newspaper. A man given to hesitation would have looked to the right and left and watched for his opportunity, and lost it. Philip Sheldon knew better than to waste his chances by needless precaution, and he made himself master of all the intelligence the blotting-pad could afford him before the clerk emerged from the inner den where the rattling and stamping was going forward. "'I thought as much,' muttered the stockbroker, as he recognized traces of his brother's sprawling penmanship upon the pad. The message had been written with a heavy hand and a spongy quill, and had left a tolerably clear impression of its contents on the blotting paper. Here and there the words stood out bold and clear. Here and there again there was only one decipherable letter amongst a few broken hieroglyphics. Mr. Sheldon was accustomed to the examination of very illegible documents, and he was able to master the substance of that random impression. If he could not decipher the whole, he made out sufficient for his purpose. Money was to be offered to a man called Goodge for certain letters. He knew his brother's affairs well enough to know that these letters, for which money was to be offered, must needs be letters of importance in some search for an heir at law. So far all was clear and simple. But beyond this point he found himself at fault. Where was this Goodge to be found? And who was the person that was to offer him money for the letters? The names and addresses, which had been written first, had left no impression on the blotting-pad, or an impression so faint as to be useless for any practical purpose. Mr. Sheldon put down the pad and lingered by the door of the office deliberating, when the rattling and hammering came to an abrupt termination, and the clerk emerged from the interior den. "'Oh!' he exclaimed. "'It's all right. Your message shall go directly.' The stockbroker, whose face was half averted from the clerk, and who stood between that functionary and the light from the open doorway, at once comprehended the error that had arisen. The clerk had mistaken him for his brother. "'I'm not quite clear as to whether I gave the right address,' he said promptly, with his face still averted, and his attention apparently occupied by a paper in his hand. "'Just see how I wrote it. There's a good fellow.' The clerk withdrew for a few minutes, and returned with the message in his hand. From George Shelton to Valentine Hawkehurst, Black Swan Inn, Ullerton, he read aloud from the document. "'All right, and thanks,' cried the stockbroker. He gave one momentary glance at the clerk, and had just time to see that individual's look of bewilderment as some difference in his voice and person from the voice, and person from the black-whiskered man who had just left the office, dawned upon his troubled senses. After that one glance, Mr. Sheldon darted across the pavement, sprang into his cab, and called to the driver, "'Literary Institution, Burton Street, as fast as you can go.' "'I will try my luck in the second column of the Times,' he said to himself. "'If George's scheme is what I take it to be, I shall get some clue to it there.' He took a little oblong memorandum-book from his pocket, and looked at his memoranda of the past week. Among those careless jottings he found one memorandum scrawled in pencil, amongst notes and addresses in ink. Haygarth, intestate. G.S. to see after. That's it, 
he exclaimed, Hagarth intestate, Valentine Harkhurst not at Dorking, but working for my brother. Goodge, letters to be paid for. It's all like the bits of mosaic those antiquarian fellows are always finding in the ruins of somebody's baths. A few handfuls of colored chips that look like rubbish, and can yet be patched into a perfect geometric design. I'll hunt up a file of the Times at the Burton Institution, and find out this Haygarth, if he's to be found there. The Burton Institution was a somewhat dingy temple devoted to the interests of science and literature, and next door to some baths that were very popular among the deacons of Bloomsbury. People in quest of the baths were apt to ascend the classic flight of steps leading to the institution, when they should have descended to a lower threshold lurking modestly by the side of that edifice. The baths and the institution had both been familiar to Mr. Sheldon in that period of probation which he had spent in Fitzgeorge Street. He was sufficiently acquainted with the librarian of the institution to go in and out uninterrogated and to make any use he pleased of the reading-room. He went in to-day, asked to see the latest bound volumes of the Times and the latest files of unbound papers, and began his investigation working backwards. Rapidly and dexterously he turned the big leaves of the journals. The investigation occupied nearly three-quarters of an hour, but at the expiration of that time, he had alighted on the advertisement published in the march of the preceding year. He gave a very low whistle, a kind of phantom whistle, as he read this advertisement. John Haygarth, a hundred thousand pounds. The fortune for which a claimant was lacking amounted to a hundred thousand pounds. Mr. Sheldon knew commercial despots who counted their wealth by millions, and whose fiat could sway the exchanges of Europe but a few hundred thousand pounds seemed to him a very nice thing nevertheless, and he was ready to dispute the prize the anticipation whereof had rendered his brother so triumphant. "'He has rejected me as a coadjutor,' he thought, as he went back to his cab after having copied the advertisement. "'He shall have me as an antagonist.' "'Omega Street, Chelsea, next call,' he cried to the driver." and was soon beyond the confines of Bloomsbury, and rattling away towards the borderland of Belgravia. He had completed his search of the newspapers at ten minutes past twelve, and at twenty minutes to one he presented himself at the lodging-house in Omega Street, where he found Captain Paget, in whose promoting business there happened to be a lull just now. With this gentleman he had a long interview and the result of that interview was the departure of the captain by the two o'clock express for Ullerton. Thus had it happened that Valentine Hawkehurst and his patron encountered each other on the platform of Ullerton Station. CHAPTER Two: VALENTINE INVOKES THE PHANTOMS OF THE PAST October 7th, Midnight I was so fortunate as to get away from Spotswold this morning very soon after the completion of my researches in the vestry and at five o'clock in the afternoon I found myself once more in the streets of Ullerton. Coming home in the rain I meditated seriously upon the unexpected appearance of Horatio Paget at the headquarters of this Haygarthian investigation, and the more I considered that fact, the more I felt inclined to doubt my own patron's motives, 
and to fear his interference can his presence in ullerton have any relation to the business that has brought me here that is the question which i ask myself a hundred times during my journey from spotswold that is the question which i ask myself still i have no doubt i give myself unnecessary trouble but i know that old man's machiavellian cleverness only too well and i am inclined to look with suspicion upon every action of his my first business on returning to this house was to ascertain whether any one bearing his name or answering my description of him had arrived during my absence i was relieved by finding that no stranger whatever had put up at the inn since the previous forenoon who may have used the coffee-room is another question not so easily set at rest in the evening a great many people come in and go out and my friend and patron may have taken his favorite brandy and soda skimmed his newspaper and picked up whatever information was to be obtained as to my movements without attracting any particular attention in the mortal words of lessee of the globe theatre why i should fear i know not and yet i feel fear i found a registered letter from george sheldon enclosing twenty pounds in notes and furnished therewith i went straight to my friend jonah whom i found engaged in the agreeable occupation of taking tea i showed him the money but my estimate of the reverend gentleman's honour being of a very limited nature i took care not to give it to him till he had produced the letters on finding that i was really prepared to give him his price he went to an old-fashioned bureau and opened one of those secret recesses which cannot for three minutes remain a secret to any investigator possessed of a tolerably accurate eye or a three-foot rule from this hiding-place which he evidently considered a triumph of mechanical art worthy the cabinet of a d'argason or a fouche he produced a packet of faded yellow letters about which there lurked a faint odour of dried rose-leaves and lavender which seemed the very perfume of the past when my reverend friend had laid the packet on the table within reach of my hand and not until then i gave him the bank-notes his fat old fingers closed upon them greedily and his fishy old eyes were illumined by a faint glimmer which i believe nothing but bank-notes could have kindled in them after having assured himself that they were genuine acknowledgments of indebtedness on the part of the old lady in the thread needle street and not the base simulacra of birmingham at five-and-twenty shillings a dozen thirteen as twelve mr goodge obligingly consented to sign a simple form of receipt which i had drawn up for the satisfaction of my principal i think you said there were forty-odd letters i remarked before i proceeded to count the documents in the presence of mr goodge that gentleman looked at me with an air of astonishment which had i not known him to be the most consummate of hypocrites would have seemed to be simplicity itself i said from thirty to forty he exclaimed i never said there were forty odd letters i looked at him and he looked at me his face told me plainly enough that he was trying to deceive me and my face told him plainly enough that he had no chance of succeeding in that attempt whether he was keeping back some of the letters with a view to extorting more money from me hereafter or whether he was keeping them with the idea of making a better bargain with somebody else i could not tell but of the main fact i was certain he had cheated me 
I untied the red tape which held the letters together. Yes, there was a piece of circumstantial evidence which might have helped to convict my friend had he been on his trial in a criminal court. The red tape, or the mark of the place in which it had been tied for half a century, and a little way within this mark the trace of a very recent tying. Some of the letters had been extracted, and the tape had been tied anew. I had no doubt that this had been done while my negotiation with Mr. Goodge had been pending. What was I to do? Refuse the letters and demand to have my principal's money returned to me? I knew my friend well enough to know that such a proceeding would be about as useless as it would be to request the ocean to restore a cup of water that had been poured into it. The letters he had given me might or might not afford some slight link in the chain I was trying to put together, and the letters withheld from me might be more or less valuable than those given to me. In any case, the transaction was altogether a speculative one, and George Sheldon's money was hazarded as completely as if it had been put upon an outsider for the derby. Before bidding him a polite farewell, I was determined to make Mr. Goodge thoroughly aware that he had not taken me in. "'You said there were more than forty letters,' I told him. "'I remember the phrase, forty-odd, which is a colloquialism one would scarcely look for in Tillotson or John Wesley, who cherished a prejudice in favor of scholarship, which does not distinguish all his followers. "'You said there were forty-odd letters, and you have removed some from the packet.' I am quite aware that I have no legal remedy against you, as our contract was a verbal one, made without witnesses, so I must be content with what I get, but I do not wish you to flatter yourself with the notion that you have hoodwinked a lawyer's clerk. You are not clever enough to do that, Mr. Goodge, though you are knave enough to cheat every attorney in the law list. Young man, are you aware— as I have suffered by the absence of any witness to our negotiation, I may as well profit by the absence of any witness to our interview. You are a cheat and a trickster, Mr. Goodge, and I have the honor to wish you good afternoon. Go forth, young man, cried the infuriated Jonah, whose fat round face became beetroot color with rage, and who involuntarily extended his hand to the poker, for the purpose of defence and not defiance, I believe. Go forth, young man, I say unto you, as Abimelech said unto Jedediah, go forth. I'm not quite clear as to the two scriptural proper names with which the Reverend Jonah embellished his discourse on this occasion, but I know that sort of man always has a leaning to the Abimelech and Jedediahs of biblical history solely i believe because the names have a sonorous roll with them that is pleasant in the mouth of the charlatan as i was in the act of going forth quite at my leisure for i had no fear of the clerical poker my eye happened to alight on a small side table covered with a chessboard patterned cloth in gaudy colours and adorned with some of those sombre volumes which seemed like an outward evidence of the sober piety of their possessor among the sombre volumes lay something which savoured another hemisphere than that to which those brown leather-bound books belonged. It was a glove, a gentleman's glove, of pale lavender kid, small in size for a masculine glove, and bearing upon it the evidence of the cleaner's art. Such might be the glove of an exiled Brummel, 
but could never have encased the squat paw of a Jonah Goodge. It was as if the pointe d'Alecon ruffle of Chesterfield had been dropped in the study of John Wesley. In a moment there flashed into my mind an idea which has haunted me ever since. That glove had belonged to my respected patron, Horatio Paget, and it was for his benefit the letters had been abstracted from the packet. He had been with Jonah Goodge in the course of that day, and had bought him over to cheat me. I then was obliged to go back to the old question. Was it possible that the captain could have any inkling of my business? Who could have told him? Who could have betrayed a secret which was known only to George Sheldon and myself? After all, are there not other people than Horatio Paget who wear cleaned lavender gloves? But it always has been a habit with the captain to leave one loose glove behind him, and I dare say it was the recollection of this which suggested the idea of his interference in the Gooch business. I devoted my evening to the perusal of Mrs. Rebecca Haygarth's letters. The pale ink, the quaint cramped hand, the old-fashioned abbreviations, and very doubtful orthography rendered the task laborious. But I stuck to my work bravely, and the old clock in the marketplace struck two as I began the last letter. As I get deeper into this business, I find my interest in it growing day by day an interest sui genere, apart from all prospect of gain, apart even from the consideration that by means of this investigation I am obtaining a living which is earned almost honestly. For if I tell an occasional falsehood, or act an occasional hypocrisy, I am no worse than a secretary of legation of an old Bailey barrister. The pleasure which I now take in the progress of this research is a pleasure that is new to me, it is the stimulus which makes a breakneck gallop across dreary fields gridironed with dikes and stone walls so delicious to the sportsman. It is the stimulus which makes the task of the mathematician sweet to him when he devotes laborious days to the solution of an obtruse problem. It is the stimulus that sustains the Indian trapper against all the miseries of cold and hunger, foul weather and aching limbs. It is the fever of the chase, that inextinguishable fire, which, once lighted in the human breast, is not to be quenched until the hunt is ended. I should like to earn three thousand pounds, but if I were to be none the richer for my trouble, I think now, that I am so deeply involved in this business, I should still go on. I want to fathom the mystery of that midnight internment at Dewsdale. I want to know the story of that Mary Haygarth who lies under the old yew-tree at Spotswold, and for whose loss someone sorrowed without hope of consolation. Was that a widower's commonplace, I wonder? And did the unknown mourner console himself ultimately with a new wife? Who knows, as my Italian friends say when they discuss the future of France? Shall I ever penetrate that mystery of the past? My task seems to me almost as hopeless as if George Sheldon had set me to hunt up the descendants of King Solomon's ninety-ninth wife. A hundred years ago seems as far away, for all practical purposes, as if it were on the other side of the flood. The letters are worth very little. They are prim and measured epistles, and they relate much more to spiritual matters than to temporal business. 
mrs rebecca seems to have been so much concerned for the health of her soul that she had very little leisure to think about anything so insignificant as the bodies of other people the letters are filled with discourses upon her own state of mind and the tone of them reveals not a little of that pride whose character it is to stimulate humility mrs rebecca is always casting ashes on her head but she takes care to let her friend and pastor know what a saintly head it is notwithstanding i have laid aside three of the most secular letters which i selected after wading through unnumbered pages of bewailings in the strain of a wesleyan madame guyon these throw some little light upon the character of matthew haygarth but do not afford much information of a tangible kind i have transcribed the letters verbatim adhering even to certain eccentricities of orthography which were by no means unusual in an age when the pretender to the crown of great britain wrote of his father as gems the first letter bears the date of august thirtieth seventeen seventy three one week after the marriage of the lady to our friend matthew reverend friend and pastor on monday sinite we arrived in london which seems to me a mighty big city but of no more merit or piety than babylon of old my husband who knows ye town better than he knows those things with which it would more become him to be familiar was pleased to laugh mightily at that pious aversion wherewith i regarded some of ye most notable sights in this place we went the other night to a great garden called by some spring garden by others vauxhall as having been at one time ye resident or estate of that arch-fiend and papistical traitor vox or fox but although i felt obligated to my husband for ye desire to entertain me with a fine sight i could not but look with shame upon serious christians disporting themselves like children amongst coloured lamps and listening as if in rapture to profane music when at so much less cost of money or of health they might have been assembled together to improve and edify one another my obliging matthew would have taken me to other places of the like character but inspired as i hope and believe by ye direction of ye spirit i look upon myself to tell him what vain trifling is all such kind of pleasure he argued with me stoutly saying that ye king and queen who are both shining examples of goodness and piety do attend foxhall and rainlaw and are to be seen there frequent to the delight of their subjects on which i told him that much as i esteemed my sovereign and his respectable consort i would complete my existence without having seen them rather than i would seek to encounter them in a place of vain and frivolous diversion he listened to my discourse in a kind of sober temper but he was not convinced for by and by he falls of a sudden to sighing and groaning and cries out oh i went to vauxhall once when ye garden was not many years made and oh how bright ye lamps shone like ye stars of heaven fallen among bushes and oh how sweet ye music sounded like ye hymns of angels in dewy evening but that was nigh upon twenty years gone by and all ye world is changed since then you will conceive reverend sir that i was scandalized by such a foolish rhapsody 
and in plain words admonished my husband of his folly whereupon he speedily became sober and asked my pardon but for all that night continued of a gloomy countenance ever and anon falling and sighing into groaning as before indeed honoured sir i have good need of a patient spirit in my dealings with him for although at times i think he is in a fair way to become a christian there are other times when i doubt satan still has a hold upon him and that all my prayers and admonitions have been in vain you who know the wildness and wickedness of his past life so far as that life was ever known to any but himself who was ever a secret and silent disposition concerning his own doings in this city though free-spoken and frank in all common matters you honoured sir know with how serious an intention i have taken upon myself the burden of matrimony hoping thereby to secure the complete conversion of his wayward soul you are aware how it was ye earnest desire of my late respected father that matthew haygarth and i should be man and wife and his father and my father having been friends and companions in ye days of her most gracious majesty queen anne you know how after being lost to all decent company for many years matthew came back after his father's death and lived a sober and serious life attending amongst our community and being seen to shed tears on more than one occasion while listening to the discourse of our reverend and inspired founder and you my dear and honoured pastor will feel for me when i tell you how i am tormented by ye fear of backsliding in this soul which i have promised to restore to ye fold it was but yesterday when walking with him near st john's gate at clerkenwell he came to a standstill all of a sudden and he cried in that impetuous manner which is even yet natural to him look ye now becky what's like to see the house in which the happiest years of my life was spent and i making no answer as thinking it was but some sudden freak he points out a black dirty-looking dwelling-place with overhanging windows and a wide gabled roof yonder it stands becky he cries number seven john street clerkenwell a queer dingy box of four walls my wench a tumble-down kennel with a staircase that would break your neck to mount being strange to it and a half a day's journey from court end of town but that house was once paradise to me and to look at it even now though tis over eighteen years since i saw the inside of it will bring the tears to these poor old eyes of mine and then he walked on so fast that i could scarce keep pace with him till we came to smithfield and then he began to tell me about bartholomew fair and brave sights he had seen and must needs showed me where had stood the booth of one fielding since infamously notorious as the writer of some trashy novels the dullness whereof is only surpassed by their profligacy and then he talks of fox the conjurer who made a great fortune and of some humble person called tiddydoll a dealer in gingerbread and such foolish wares but he could tell me nothing of those early preachings of our revered founder in moorfields which would have been more pleasant to me than all this vain babble about drolls and gestures gingerbread makers and showmen when we had walked around the place and it was time to take a coach for our lodging at chelsea 
he having brought me thus far to see st paul's and the prison of newgate the mint and tower the gloomy fit came upon him again and all that evening he was dull and sorrowful though i read aloud to him from the printed sermons of a rising member of our community so you will see honoured sir how difficult it is for these children of satan to withdraw themselves from that master they have once served since that sober age of fifty-three years my husband's weak heart yet yearns after profligate fairies and foolish gardens lighted by coloured lamps and now no more reverend friend my paper being gone and it is full time to reflect that your patience must be gone also service to mrs goodge i have no more room but to assure you that your gaieties of this foolish and erring city have no power to withdraw your heart of her whose chief privilege it is to subscribe herself your humble follower and servant rebecca haygarth to my mind there seems just a shadowy hint of some bygone romance in this letter why did the dingy house in john street bring the tears to matthew's eyes and why did the memory of vauxhall and bartholomew fair seem so sweet to him and then that signing and groaning and dolefulness of visage whenever the thought of the past came back to him what did it all mean i wonder was it only his vanished youth which poor sobered converted wesleyanized matthew regretted or were there pensive memories of something even sweeter than youth associated with the coloured lamps of vauxhall and the dinginess of clerkenwell who shall sound the heart of a man who lived a hundred years ago and where is the fathom line which shall plumb its mysteries i should need a stack of old letters before i could arrive at the secret of that man's life the other two letters which i have selected after some deliberation relate to the last few weeks of matthew's existence and in these again i fancy i see the trace of some domestic mystery some sorrowful secret which this sober citizen kept hidden from his wife but which he was on several occasions half inclined to reveal to her perhaps if the lady's piety which seems to have been thoroughly sincere and praiseworthy by the by had been a little less cold and pragmatical in its mode of expression poor matthew might have taken heart of grace and made a clean breast of it that there was a secret in that man's life i feel convinced but that conviction goes very little way towards proving any one point of the smallest value to george sheldon i transcribe an extract from each of the two important letters the first written a month before matthew's death the second a fortnight after that event and indeed honoured sir i have of late suffered much unease of spirit concerning my husband those fits of ye mopes of which i informed you some time back have again come upon him for a while i did hope that these melancholic affections were ye fruit put forth by a regenerate soul but within this month past it has been my sorrow to discover that these gloomy disorders arise from ye promptings of the evil one it has pleased mr haygarth of late to declare that his life is nigh at an end and indeed he affects a conviction that his days are numbered this profane and impertinent notion i take to be a direct inspiration of satan of a character to ye sudden and unaccountable fits of laughter 
which have seized upon many pious Christians in the midst of earnest congregations, whereby much shame and discomfiture has been brought upon our sect. Nor is there any justification for this presumptuous certainty entertained by my husband, inasmuch as his health is as much as it has ordinarily been for ye last ten years. He does acknowledge this with his own lips, and immediately after cries out that his race is run, and ye hand of death is upon him, which I cannot but take as ye voice of ye enemy speaking through that weak mouth of ye flesh. On Sunday night last pass, ye gloomy fit being come upon him after prayers, Mr. Haygarth began all on a sudden, as it is his habit to do. There is something I would fain tell ye, wench, he cries out, something about those roistering days in London, which it might be well for thee to know. But I answered him directly, that I had no desire to hear of profane roisterings, and that it would be better for him to keep his peace, and listen reverently to the expounding of the scriptures, which Humphrey Bagot, our worthy pastor and friend, had promised to explain and exemplify after supper. We was seated at ye time in ye blue parlour, the table being spread for supper, and were waiting our friend from the village, a man of humble station, being but a poor chapman and huckster, but of exalted mind and a most holy temper, and sells me the same growth of bohe as that drunk by our gracious queen at Windsor. After I had thus reproved him, in no unkind spirit, Mr. Haygarth fell to sighing, and then cries out all at once, When I am on my deathbed, wife, I shall tell thee something. Be sure thou asks me for it. Or if death come upon me unawares, thou wouldst do well to search in the old tulip-leaf bureau for a letter, since I may tell thee that in a letter which I would not tell thee with these lips. Before there was time to answer him, in comes Mr. Bagot, and we to supper, after which he read the sixth chapter of Hebrews, and expounded it at much length for our edifying. At the end whereof Satan had obtained fast hold of Mr. Haygarth, who was fallen asleep and snoring heavily. Here is the plain allusion to some secret, which that pragmatical idiot, Mrs. Rebecca, studiously endeavoured not to hear. The next extract is from a letter written when the lips that had been fain to speak were stilled for ever. Ah, Mistress Rebecca, you were but mortal woman, although you were also a shining light amongst the followers of John Wesley, and I wonder what you would have given for poor Matthew's secret then. Some days, being gone after his melancholy event, I bethought me of that which my husband had said to me before I left Dewsdale for that excursion to the love-feasts at Camberton and Kesfield, Bropendine and Donfold, from which I returned but two short weeks before my poor Matthew's demise. I call to remembrance that discourse about approaching death, in which my poor human judgment did esteem a pestilent error of mind, but which I do now recognize as a spiritual premonition, and I set myself earnestly to look for that letter which Matthew told me he would leave in the tulip-leaf bureau. But though I did search with great care and pains, my trouble was wasted, inasmuch as there was no letter. Nor did I leave off to search until every nook and crevice had been examined. 
but in one of ye secret drawers hidden in an old dog's-eared book of prayers i did find a lock of fair hair as if cut from the head of a child entwined curiously with a long plait of dark hair which by reason of ye length thereof must needs have been the hair of a woman and with these the miniature of a girl's face in a golden frame i will not stain this paper which is near come to an end by the relation of such suspicions as arose in my mind on finding these curious treasures nor will i be of so unchristian temper as to speak ill of the dead my husband was in his latter days exemplarily sober and a humble acting christian ye secrets of his earlier life will not now be shown to me on this side heaven i have set aside ye book ye picture and ye plaited hair in my desk for conveniency where i will show them to you when i am next rejoiced by your improving conversation until then in grief or in happiness in health and sickness i trust i shall ever continue with your same sincerity your humble and obliged servant and disciple rebecca haygarth thus end my excerpts from the correspondence of mrs haygarth they are very interesting to me as containing the vague shadow of a vanished existence but whether they will ever be worth setting forth in an affidavit is extremely uncertain doubtless that miniature of an unknown girl which caused so much consternation in the mind of sober mrs rebecca was no other than the molly whose grey eyes reminded me of charlotte halliday as i copied mrs rebecca's quaint epistles in the midnight stillness the things of which i was writing arose before me like a picture i could see the blue parlour that sunday evening the sober couple seated primly opposite to each other the china monsters on the high chimney-piece the blue and white dutch tiles with queer squat figures of flemish citizens on foot and on horseback the candles burning dimly on the spindle-legged table two poor pale flames reflected ghastly in the dark polished panels of the wainscot the big open bible on an adjacent table the old silver tankard and buckhorn handled knives and forks set out for supper the solemn eight-day clock ticking drearily in the corner and amid all that sombre old-fashioned comfort gray-haired matthew sighing and lamenting for his vanished youth i have grown strangely romantic since i have fallen in love with charlotte halliday the time was when i should have felt nothing but a flippant ignorant contempt for poor haygarth's feeble signs and lamentings but now i think of him with a sorrowful tenderness and am more interested in his poor commonplace life that picture and those two locks of hair than in the most powerful romance that ever emanated from mortal genius it has been truly said that truth is stranger than fiction may it not as justly be said that truth has a power to touch the human heart which is lacking in the most sublime flights of a shakespeare or the grandest imagings of an aeschylus one is sorry for the fate of agamemnon but one is infinitely more sorrowful for the cruel death of that english richard in the dungeon at pomfret who was a very insignificant person as compared to the king of men and of ships end of book the fifth part one